Chief Miller is dedicated to featuring the men and women of the fire service from around the world. Chief Miller has a family of content creators who feature great people doing great things, making the fire service a better place. Make sure to follow along as Chief Miller creates, shares, collaborates, and features the special people who call themselves firefighters. Follow along on Instagram at Chief underscore Miller. Find him on Twitter at Chief underscore Miller underscore. Like him on Facebook at Chief underscore Miller number one. And watch for all the podcasts featured within the Chief Miller media family. Make sure to check out ChiefMillerApparel.com for all your fire service apparel needs. The K-Man Radio Show is proudly sponsored by some great firefighter-owned businesses, and we're going to talk about them here for a second, starting with my friends Peter and Nikki from AxeCaps.com. If you're in the market for some quality apparel, what about direct-to-garment printing? Are you looking to bring your own brand out to the world? Well, go check out AxeCaps.com today. Peter and Nikki will be sure to take care of you. Also, Ian Sargent from South Florida at SGT Firebags. That's SargentFirebags, SGTFirebags.com. If you're in the market for a wash radio strap or a clean gear bag to protect you from the carcinogens out there reduce that risk of cancer exposure guess what sgt firebags has you covered use Canban for 10 percent off and my brother herb tyler from nrc or national rescue consultants if you're looking to get usar educated from some of the best out there go check out my brother herb tyler at nrc.com that's national rescue consultants Hey, canners, it's time for 30 minutes of unadulterated and uncensored shenanigans. Get ready to call HR because you're going to need sensitivity training after this. Gear up because it's going to hurt worse than writ training in July. Welcome to the Can Man Radio Show with your host, Jason Liska. Welcome back to another episode of the Can Man Radio Show. Today again, Weirsdale is our location because, hell, that's my studio now. And I'm just very fortunate to have it in this new awesome equipment again, as we talked about earlier, the BSW, the Roadcaster Pro, and all the fantastic stuff that comes along with being able to professionally broadcast some great content for you. And today's guest, uh, well, he's probably not going to need much of an introduction for most of you in the professional fire service. He's got over 42 years leading and charging and pushing forward as a chief, a deputy chief, as a chief paramedic with the St. Louis Fire Department. He is a published author. One of the coolest books coming out here soon. If you haven't read it yet, it'll be out soon. It's Fully Involved Leadership. And Chief Gary Ludwig is our guest today. And, and you know, Chief, I want to bring you on and thank you first and foremost for taking the time to come in and, and spend with us this morning on a busy Sunday for you. Not a problem. It's an honor to be here. Well, you know, definitely an honor. I mean, you are not just a published author, but think about this for a second. You have probably scripted 20 years worth of articles for Firehouse Magazine, and many of us have read those articles, and they go from your experiences to your leadership experiences and much more, I imagine. I mean, what brought you to this point over the course of your career? I, I don't know. I'm, I, I like to say I've been blessed. God has blessed me in many ways with my career and 
Um, you know, it started with St. Louis, just that blessing of being hired two months out of high school to be hired by St. Louis and then to spend 25 years there working in a busy metropolitan system, uh, retiring as the chief paramedic from St. Louis, and then being recruited a second time to work uh, 10 years as a deputy fire chief in Memphis, another huge, large system there with oh, yeah. uh, 50, 57 stations and 1,800 plus firefighters and and uh, have a second opportunity to work in a large metropolitan area. And, uh, and then God has blessed me again the, where I find myself currently as a fire chief here in Champaign, Illinois, working without many outstanding professionals here also. And, and you're a St. Louis boy by birth originally, are you not? South St. Louis, Barney Oh, Rays, my yeah. goodness. So Champlain is not that far from where essentially you grew up in, in, in western Illinois, where you sit right now, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I'm about three hours door to door. I still have a home down there in St. Louis, and so about three hours door to door. On top of the lake house that you just constructed, which, you know, by listening to you, for all intents and purposes, sounds like the perfect retirement home where I need to be. Yeah, I think that's where... Um, I think that home that my wife and I just built is built will be where we'll be until our expiration date, as I like to say. And uh, and uh, I know you live in a lake home also, and so uh, lake living is just beautiful. Well, I'll definitely have to send you pictures of the lake life from my perspective. I mean, like I said, it's sunny, it's humid, and it's beautiful out here in sunny central Florida right now. And I can only imagine what it's like up there. I mean, living on the lake life in, in St. Louis, what's it like weather-wise right now? What are you looking at temperature-wise? Uh, I think we're about 50 degrees, and it's just a slight overcast. Uh, we just had a pretty good rain uh, soaker come through here the last couple of days, left anywhere from one to three inches, which is going to help the May flowers. Oh, absolutely. And, and um, I hope my guy that cuts my grass, uh, it'll pay his bills well because he'll have to come multiple times. But uh, that's where we're currently at. So I, I'm always jealous of the Florida life. Uh, have many good friends and associates down in Florida. I visit there often. And I was just there, I think, in November over in the Tampa side. And uh, I love those West Coast uh, sunsets off that uh, off that golf. You know, and, uh, there's nothing more relaxing. It's funny. As a, as a Midwesterner as well, I, I got to tell you, the Tampa area or Tampa, if you want to go by the new Tom Brady standard or, or the Gronk standard, whatever you want to call it now. Uh, you know, a lot of people from the Midwest actually retire to the Tampa Clearwater area. And my grandparents who were from Schaumburg, uh, greater Chicago area, they did the same thing. They retired to Clearwater and I fell in love with that area. It's just so peaceful, relaxing, and the, the Gulf of Mexico is just a far greater body of water. It, you know, no questions about it as far as just the scenery, the, the clarity in some areas, and then, of course, the dolphins you get to see, which you don't see on the East Coast very often. No, not at all, and I, uh, I, I agree, man. Those, those West Coast uh, of Florida, those sunsets, they, they down in the Keys, and, and you just mentioned Clearwater. That's where I was at was in Clearwater. Um, and in, in October or September, I'm yeah, before that, I was in uh, Greater Naples, Florida. Oh, down very in familiar. Fort Myers area with the Greater Naples uh, Fire Department down there. And my good friend Kingman showed who's the chief down there. Mm -hmm. um, again, beautiful sunsets. And it's just, uh, I, I know my lake is nice. And we have some, I face west, so we have some nice sunsets there. But I like swimming in my lake. I don't have to worry about alligators. Let's well, put it that way. So. 
Yeah, that's the only downfall to swimming in a body of water in Florida, whether it's a pool, a lake, or a canal. You're always going to have to worry about the bitey things like the alligators and the snakes. So, you know, we we make do, though. I mean, uh, growing up in Florida, I've swam in my fair share of canals and lakes and and boogie boarded and all those different things in the ocean with the sharks. And I've been very fortunate, I guess. But up north, it's it's a totally different environment. I mean, you have less things to harm you in those bodies of water. You can just really enjoy them. But one thing, if you get the opportunity the next time you're down here, here is go visit one of the springs if you haven't already. Um, this is the clearest, most purest body of waters that you'll ever find. And just the fact that they're ice cold to perfection, it takes a few minutes to warm up to it. But once you're in, the swimming is phenomenal. It's like you're you're, you're looking down at the bottom, but there, you just don't have, there's no depth perception just because of the clarity of the water itself. That's how beautiful it is. That's Florida natural right there. So, I mean, you know, there's something to look forward to the next time you get down here. Well, I'm a, I am a certified diver, so oh, uh, me too. That's awesome. All right, so uh, and and so I've dove in those cenotes in Mexico, which okay. is just, again. So I know what you're talking about with the clarity. Oh yeah. And of course, when you dive down south of you all down there in the Bahamas and down in the Caribbean, uh, uh, it's amazing. Western Caribbean, Eastern Caribbean, it doesn't matter. It's amazing how you get 200, 250 feet visibility. Oh yeah. You know, and, and even at 90 feet or so. So it's just absolutely amazing. So, well, the deepest I've gone is right at about a hundred feet. And that's how I was able to get my advanced open water. This was probably over a decade ago. And, and I'll tell you, it was great. I uh, got a little, uh, freaky at one point. I think I might've had a little nitrogen narcosis at, at one point. And, uh, the spring we were in, it was just very dark when we hit that lower depth. And, and we actually made it to an air bell and it took me a second to reset. But once I did, I, I realized there was nothing to fear. So we revisited that depth again and, and did it like a champion at that point. And it's probably been a good five, six, seven years since I've been in the water. And all, all my friends are now starting to take up diving. And here comes COVID. And now everything's changed. And our society has taken us away from being able to enjoy the outdoors. So I'm hoping that we can return to some normalcy because I'd really like to get back in the water and dive once again. Yeah, I'm looking up a book as we speak. Um, when you talk about nitrogen narcosis, I just finished a great book and uh, it talked about a submarine off the East Coast that mm -hmm. they were trying to get to. And uh, I, I was shocked. Um, oh, it's called Shadow Divers. Shadow Divers, okay. Oh my, it talks about them trying to, they found a U-boat submarine off the East Coast they didn't know was there. Uh -huh. I forget what body, what the depth was, but uh, it's, I think they lost two or three divers from nitrogen narcosis. Uh, oh, no. So uh, it's a great book, um, and it's by uh, a master diver that's that's used to do, doing those underwater wreck diving sort of things. I forget what his name is, but I recommend the book highly. Very entertaining. Well, there you go. And again, back to your books. You were talking earlier about fully involved leadership, and just give me a brief synopsis of what, what brought you to write this book. I mean, you are a leader. You are a consultant. You are a published author in many aspects of the fire service, uh, not just in the Firehouse Magazine realm, but I mean, you're a, a speaker. Uh, you are just in so many ways accomplished. And why leadership? What brought you to that point? Well, um, leadership is something that I truly enjoy um, because I, I, I want to make things better. Okay. I want to improve things. I don't, I don't want to be in a passive way just sitting there and watching things happen without having some input into it to make it better. And so the only way you can do that is through leadership. You have to be, as they say, uh, one of my mentors, Jim Page, said uh, decisions are made by those that show up. 
And, uh, and so the only way you can really truly show up and be a part of something that to affect change for the better is to be in a leadership position, whether it's mentoring somebody or whether it is actually improving the system that you're working within or changing something within the system that you're in. So, so um, as president of the international association of fire chiefs, where I find myself right now mm-hmm. during this COVID-19 process um, you know, that is, that's an opportunity for me to be in a position to, uh, as I say, lead, educate, and serve, which is our model at the IFC uh, in this crucial time, is that be able to make a difference. And and we are in a definite uh, time of, of uh, sorrow and fear, and it's crucial uh, in the aspect that we, as the first responder community, have uh, now become more victims than actual responders in some cases because of the lack of PPE that exists out there. Um, Putting a face to it, we've lost six brothers in the organization and many more uh, brothers and sisters out there from the volunteer and EMS field. Uh, Over 10,500 firefighters uh, that are currently, uh, you know, looking at isolation or diagnosis. And it just seems like the numbers are going up. And what what really concerns me is where did we lose our perspective as a service of preparedness? You know, where where did we go wrong or what what is not being done or said and and what can we do better? Because I know right now you're leading the charge with the IFC uh, to help bring critical, critically needed PPE to responders across this nation. I've read your letters. They are impactful. Uh, they resonate with me to the president, to the to the Congress. Uh, let's talk about that for a second. So what, what are we what are we facing right now from your perspective and, and where can we change? What do we need to do to change? Well, um, one, um, you know, sometimes the the impact, whatever is happening is beyond our scope. We're always prepared for the local emergencies in our communities. Um, but sometimes we ask for help from the federal government. Isn't that's what they should be there for, whether it's a hurricane in Florida mm-hmm. uh, where you need use our teams or other types of resources. Uh, or whether it's this pandemic. And so most of us were prepared for the local emergency or even the regional uh, catastrophe that may happen. Mm -hmm. But it's these national disasters where we ask for the federal government help. And it appears as though the strategic national stockpile was not prepared for this. Okay. And and, uh, and some of the things I have said in my phone conversations with the White House and uh, people from Congress, the National Governors Association, that uh, I've been also working with to try to get PPE to our first responders at state level mm-hmm. um, is that at some point we have to have a reckoning in this country. And that is that these crucial supplies that are made overseas that we're dependent upon with other countries, such as, you know, China, Malaysia, um, whether it's drugs or PPE, they need to be brought back onto our shores and manufactured here that we have control of that. We wouldn't make our missiles, bombs and our tanks overseas during the middle of a war and be dependent upon some other country. Not at all. And so, and so why do we, why do we, why do we manufacture these weapons of war overseas and rely on other countries? And so, so this chain supply uh, that we see ourselves in mm-hmm. uh, is challenged. And so uh, that's why the national production act uh, should have been really fully implemented where we're making stuff on our shores and, um, the, the prioritization not only needs to be our healthcare workers, 
but also our firefighters and our paramedics. And that's where I've been fighting at because the states have been changing. Some of the states have been changing the prioritization of our firefighters mm-hmm. and healthcare workers. I, I talked to a fire chief in Florida, ironically, um, since you're in Florida, and uh, they had a conversation with a state health official who directly told them on the phone that you are not the priority that the healthcare workers and the people who are going doing home health care, the health departments, they are the priority. And um, that was their attitude. And that's why it's so important that we're working with the National Governors Association to say, no, this can't happen. We have to protect our firefighters and our, our paramedics. They are the warriors, as I like to say, on the tip of the spear mm-hmm. in this battle. And you have said it eloquently in many occasions, or on many occasions, rather, we are the tip of the spear. And how how can you rate us any less important than, you know, the home health care providers or even the providers in the hospital? Sure, I get it. They're going to be overrun potentially by patients that have COVID or suspicious for COVID. But, you know, it's kind of funny. That's not exactly the case across most of the country. If you look at hospitals uh, in general, except for the hot spots, you're not seeing a significant increase or uptick in patients patient counts as far as it goes. In fact, my understanding is you're seeing hospitals, you know, conduct furloughs or layoffs of certain key, you know, elements like nursing staff and doctors and, you know, internists and so on and so forth. So if the messaging is going to be that they take priority, how come it's us that takes the back seat when we're the first response, the first responders who require this PPE, who are going to be the first in contact 100% of the time before they even set foot into a hospital. And it makes me sick to hear that an actual health official, and from my state nonetheless, would actually imply that we're any less important than a home health care provider. While their job is important, we are the ones that respond 24-7, no questions asked, without hesitation, and step up as we are designed to do in our DNA. Roger that. And um, I know as of last week, that Florida has received, and I have all these numbers from other states also, sure. 2.9 million N95 masks. And this fire chief that I talked to, which is in Southwest Florida, uh-huh. um, he's got a good sized department, 15, 16 stations. I think it's 16 stations. Uh-huh. He's received 40 of those, four zero. 40. 40. 40 out of 2.9 million that have been delivered to the state through the strategic national stockpile. Now I was on a phone conversation conference with the FEMA administrator last week, which is Pete Gaynor. Mm -hmm. And I point blank asked him, do you consider firefighters and paramedics the same priority as healthcare workers? And his answer was emphatically yes. I said, well, we got a problem then because what you are handing out to your states is not getting to us. And so one of the things I've said to him is that, just like the, like the highway departments, the Department of Transportation, they give highway funding, federal funding to states for the interstates. Yeah. And there's conditions attached to that. If you're going to accept this federal funding, these are X, Y, and Z that you have to do A, B, and C, and X, Y, and Z. Absolutely. So I say the same thing with federal funding from FEMA, that if you're going to accept federal funding, strategic national stockpile equipment from the federal government, these are the conditions. And one of those conditions should be that firefighters and paramedics are the priority when it's same priority as anybody else when it comes to PPE. 
Well, if you're going to treat the highway system as a critical component of the infrastructure for the supply chain, then you better treat the first responders as a critical component of the infrastructure for the supply chain of protection and service. Because when you cripple the services in general, I mean, I've never seen in my days and 20 years of being in this profession, a contingency plan, should we have X amount of members out because they're either in isolation or God forbid they contracted COVID and we then, you know, depress our ability to respond or or suppress it rather, you know, we're talking about the potential to brown out stations, reorganize service levels, uh, diminish ALS service to BLS service. And that's not just my department. There are departments across this country that are putting those levels of contingency plans in place. And it's all because we are running out and, and finding it increasingly more difficult to just get a simple mask, a mask that can protect us from being exposed beyond okay this this covid virus this this coronavirus that we're dealing with now and that's one of the biggest and and most significant concerns i have seeing my responders my crew you know we're alternating people going in and out of houses that are suspicious we don't want to expose too many people and we're also throwing surgical masks over rn95s to keep them intact as best we can i mean we, it seems like we're doing the best we can but obviously we could be doing better yeah i agree and that's where our federal partners and our state partners need to step up you know, what we're experiencing is beyond our capabilities and beyond our scope. It's no different than if you were to have a hurricane or earthquake in Florida uh -huh. or some other state. You're going to need federal resources to come in and help you. They're, they are not, you know, the first responders, but they are the supplement to us. They're not usually there to run the show, but they are there to provide the resources that we need. Um, and so that is why it's so critically important that the federal and the states be prepared and equate and treat us at the same priority as others. Well, and, and that being said, you would think that we'd learn from the lessons of Katrina, Andrew, 9-11, uh, uh, let me see, Ivan uh, hitting the panhandle in Florida. Uh, Wilma, the uh, list goes on. Yeah. I mean, we always learn something. Rita. Oh, gosh, Rita. yes. Oh. I mean, in our lifetime, we've seen tragic, catastrophic, natural disasters occur. Why is this any less important? I mean, we should have listened uh, from our previous, or not listened, but we should have taken something. And I feel we have, but it seems like with every pandemic disaster, whether it's natural, man-made, there's always mistakes being made and something to be learned from. So what do you think we can learn from this, from this point forward? What are we going to do to move forward because you know corona is not going away and it's only going to evolve and potentially come back different uh if not worse and have a greater impact down the road well i fear because i uh, i have, i'm an avid reader and mm -hmm. um several years ago i read the book the great influenza uh it's a great book that talks about the 1918 world uh pandemic that occurred with the spanish flu mm -hmm. um and so i had to pull that back out and read it again uh, and it's, oh, my God, we're repeating some of the same mistakes that we did in 1918. Right. And so um, so hopefully we learn from this because what happened in 1918, and I fear, and I hope it doesn't happen here, is that the virus mutated. And actually the second wave of the virus was, was the most deadliest in 1918. Uh, and so that's what I fear here before you can get a vaccine. And even if you do get a vaccine, it's going to mutate. And, and so – so that's that's we need to start preparing now 
uh, you know, there's, there are the different phases. There's mitigation, preparedness, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the response itself, and then the recovery. Yep. And we, we, we can't just start at the response phase. Well, and we can't become complacent either as we start to reopen our nation, because once we start to lay down our arms or our awareness, then that's where we're going to find the resurgence. Like you said, with the influenza of 1918, the Spanish flu, uh, there is going to be a potential uh, greater impact. And so we obviously need to know that as we open the states as we start moving forward with life as hard as it is for me to say this life has changed uh for us as we know it uh you know for the unforeseeable future and i there's no telling when we'll have a vaccination when things will start to level off i mean it takes time obviously i mean i'm grateful we have better technology uh stronger medicine practices more resources more access to resources in the sense of you know being able to provide greater access to these types of medications that are going to be out there created but it's still not in the foreseeable future at least to my understanding no, I, I, and I agree. And, uh, you know, and thankfully, uh, we do have better understanding of science and medicine than we did 100 years ago in 1918 through 1920. And, um, but, but it's still viruses have been around since the, uh, you know, forever. And, mm-hmm. you know, you go back in that book I talked about, they kind of lay out some of the history of going back to 13th, 14th, 15th century with the bubonic plague, the black plague, and those sure. sort of things. Sure. And, and that's actually where bloodletting came, uh, believe it or not, is that uh, they knew there was something in the blood that was causing these viruses or causing these problems. So so naturally, the natural uh, common thinking was, well, if we let the blood out, we'll let the virus out. I mean, it makes and sense back then, right? It made sense to those people. And so I'm sure some of the things that we're doing today, you know, if we have another pandemic 100 years or 200 years from now, they'll look back on what we did, try to learn, but then think some of the things that we might have done were barbaric in a way. So not just masks themselves, but uh, putting this in perspective of PPE in general, what are we most in need of? What are we missing the mark on uh, that we could definitely do better on? And, and I say this because think about the industries that have shifted production. You know, we're talking about auto industry and various others that have now become, you know, the, the, the facilitators for creating ventilators, right? So now we've utilized them and their resources to go ahead and get these ventilators built and out into the system. What can we be doing? What could we be doing? doing as a nation, um, as industry to help better prepare us or help us get what we need? And what is what we, what is it that we need more specifically? Well, in my opinion, it's kind of what I talked about before is that Congress at some point, we have to have a reckoning and a serious conversation in this country that, yeah, it might be cheaper to make stuff in Malaysia and China. Mm-hmm. And that's what the companies are making their profit at because they're paying somebody 47 cents an hour or whatever it is to make them N95 masks. But again, we wouldn't make our bullets, our guns, and our tanks overseas. Not at all. So, so and be relying on some com- on some country to cut us off. Um, so, why do why are we making these weapons of this war, this coronavirus war overseas? And so, I think that's one thing we need to be doing is start producing our, our products like this on our in our on our soil. Mm-hmm. Um, that National Production Act that should have been. You know, I look back at World War II when my parents, you know, uh, were actually my dad fought in the South Pacific in World War II. You know, overnight, companies started producing tanks and jeeps and 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 um, you know weapons of uh, you know, rifles, belt sure. buckles. Uh, you know, you if you ever go back and look what this country produced during World War II, it is phenomenal. I think there was over two hundred thousand planes that were, were produced in a four-year period, let alone all the bullets and the tanks and the jeeps and the helmets and all the other things that we have to ramp up our industry here in the United States 
that when these things happen, that we are ready to tackle it, our, that we can switch our uh, companies here from making bedcloths or mypillows.com or whatever the case might be to sure. making masks. Sure. And that's what we need to be able to do. And, and let's not uh, the local fire department can't do it by themselves. No. And let's not forget, you know, the funding mechanisms that were in place back then as well with war bonds. And I'm not saying that's a route we have to take, obviously, as a nation to provide, you know, the, the funding mechanisms for uh, the PPE that we require. But I mean, there, there's got to be a means and a way. And if it means bringing production back, and this is something that concerned me as well, talking to uh, Mark Treglio the other day from the IAFF, mentioning that looking at some of the material, the quality of these masks coming over from China, Malaysia, and those countries, they don't meet the same standards that we require when it comes to providing protection. So it's almost imperative that we bring those standards back to this country and we start going into production efforts to provide the PPE out there, whether it's a mask, whether it's a gown, a face shield, a respirator of some sort. It's up to us as a nation to help rebuild not just our our economy in a sense, but help rebuild the stockpile that we're going to desperately need here in the coming months and the coming years as we endure and continue down the road of Corona and COVID-19. I agree that strategic national stockpile should have enough in it to get us through whatever that, that time period is, one month, whatever the burn rate is, one month, two months, whatever, before we can ramp up production here in the United States. And uh so you're absolutely right, because uh, as IFC president, I have actually implemented three different task forces that are working on different things. And one is our COVID-19 operational task force. And there's a lady on there by the name of Dr. Christina Baxter, mm -hmm. that her expertise is looking at these N95 masks and these other things. And she is looking at what is coming out of China and Malaysia and some of those other Southeast Asia countries. And uh, she is saying, this is just phenomenal what she is saying or out, uh, you know, just incomprehensible, whatever term you want to use, that over 90% of what's coming out of there are fake. Yeah. It's fake. And yeah. so when we hear about equipment being seized by Miami-Dade and other things like that, you know, I haven't been able to, you know, Pete Gaynor told me on the phone, the FEMA administrator, that that they are not, FEMA is not seizing equipment um, or confiscating equipment. Now, what may be happening, and I haven't seen whatever happened out of Miami-Dade. Okay. But, but the, he did say the Department of Justice has a task force that is seizing fake equipment. So that's – go ahead. Go ahead. So that may have been happening in Miami-Dade. I'm not sure. I haven't seen any follow-up stories on that. But he said that's the only thing. So when you hear these stories about equipment being seized by the feds, he said that may very well be the Department of Justice seizing fake equipment. See, that answers my next question because we were talking about this the other night as well in our, our in my interview with Mark. And I asked, where where did these one million masks go? What what could have possessed the, the Fed to say, nope, we're going to take this PPE away and we're going to go ahead and just claim it for ourselves or redistribute it across the country? But that's a very plausible uh, thought process there where maybe we were getting fraudulent materials or fake materials. And so the Fed caught on to it through their task force and said, nope, we have to we have to take the hit on this. We're going to have to pull them from the, the stock pile and, and find a way to provide with better equipment, safer equipment, which by the, the end of the day is what we're going to need at the, you know, to win this war, or at least to get ahead of this battle. Well, and some of these places in China have become very good at uh, creating fake PPE. And, um, and so we, uh, the IFC did a webinar. We do one every Monday mm -hmm. at 4, 4 p.m. Eastern standard time. And, and, uh, I, I can't remember it was the last one, the one before that, that, uh, that Dr. Baxter actually had slides on there showing 
how to detect fake N95 masks. And even if there's like a C and an O and how close it's together. And she had it all wow. down. Um, and it is amazing uh, how much fake stuff is coming out of there that we think we're protecting our firefighters and our paramedics. And it turns out we're, you know, there's fake stuff. The, actually, some leaked into the FEMA stockpile and got distributed in Missouri oh. um, they, before they distributed out to all the fire departments and healthcare workers in Missouri. And they had to actually recall that because they found out they were fake. Mm. So we got to be careful with that because we think we're protected. We think, you know, it's no different than going in with a fake SEBA into a, you know, into a, a near zero, zero visibility environment and finding out once you get inside, you, my, my God, you know, you're going to know um, that you're breathing some smoke in yeah. uh, because, <laughs> because it's a fake SB or, you know, a fake, fake or fake, uh, a face mask or a fake regulator or a fake uh, tank on your back. But uh, in this case, we can't see the enemy. It's a virus. Yeah. So you think you're protected wearing this N95 and you're wearing a fake mask and uh, it's not, it's not getting all those microns. It's supposed to narrow down to 0.1 microns, mm -hmm. you know, filter that stuff out. And uh, that's, that's our worries. Uh, so that might be some of the things that I've spent about an hour on the phone with the FEMA administrator on Wednesday. And um, those are some of the takeaways that, that I learned when I spoke with him. Excellent. Well, I know that you have a million things going on, and I want to take a moment again to thank you for coming on the show today and sharing your perspective, what the IFC is doing, you as their head, as their leader, their president, and the efforts you're putting out there. You're putting a face to this from the leadership side. You're stepping up and hitting Congress head on, the president of this United States, and all of the, uh, the, the, the management teams, FEMA, and so on, and you're telling them it's time. It's time to start fixing this for everybody. So Before go ahead. Before we cut off, I gotta talk about one more thing. By all you means, Chief, by all means. So, yes, I, I have written a letter to the president and the Congress. Mm -hmm. I'm asking for $5 billion to be put into SAFER. Okay. $5 billion to be put into AFG. Okay. Those are just some of what we're going to need. Those are not wants, as I tell them. Those are needs that we have in the fire service. I'm asking them to fund those in that stimulus bill. And so we will, we're doing a, uh, what we can right now to educate Congress on our needs. Yep. There's a lot of noise up on Capitol Hill. But I will tell you, at some point, I'm going to do a call to arms. Okay. I'm going to ask every firefighter in this country, whether you're a volunteer or whatever you are, to call your representatives in Congress. When we get some language in the bill, that this is a, a need, not a want. And we want them to call their representatives, to call their offices, write them letters, whatever we have to do to tell them this is what we need for the fire service. We need to be heard on Capitol Hill. And so that call is gonna be coming soon. I'm not sure exactly when, we're waiting for it to see where the language is that comes out of the stimulus bill. But I, I, I encourage every firefighter, I don't care what patch you have, I don't care you're paid or not paid, we need to talk to our representatives and get this funding that we need. Amen, Chief. And that is, that's exactly what I was looking for for the closing. And I'm glad that you jumped in and threw that in there because it was going to be what do you think we can do next and where are you heading? So phenomenal. Thank you. And is there a website or anything you want to share through the IFC that members or just firefighters in general can go to and research more about COVID and the efforts of the IFC? Sure. Um, so it's IAFC.org. And uh, that landing page will take you to all our resources that we have for COVID-19, which we have impact dashboards. We've got one right now looking at the economic impact. We've had about 1% uh, of the fire departments uh, respond to that so far. That looks right now, or I checked this morning, it's over $400 million in economic impact to those departments of lost revenue that they're seeing. Mm. 
if you were to parlay that out to the, all the fire departments in this country, whether volunteer combination are paid, we're probably looking at about a $40 billion loss wow. in revenue to those departments that we need. You know, I'm already hearing stories of firefighters that have been told that you're going to be laid off. I know some cities are small communities, I should say, that have very little tax revenue coming in that already have laid off firefighters. Yes. I talked to one chief out of 195 on his staff of firefighters. They're talking about laying off 36. The list goes on. So it's not going to be the economic fallout of what we're seeing right now, but what I fear is coming, the avalanche and the tsunami layoffs that are coming in our profession. And we need to have a ready response force for that next local community emergency, whether it's a, a regional a catastrophe or even an economic pandemic, or sorry, an economic, but a, a national disaster such as this. Well, then let's get on it. Let's stay informed and let's be prepared because it's more than just the virus itself, no doubt, and the financial impact and what could come after this. And so with that being said again, Chief, thank you. And, you know, with all the interviews you've done, I look forward to seeing you again on the big screen and and putting the message out there. Thank you for all you do, Chief Gary Ludwig. And if there's anything down the road we can ever do, get you back on the show. It would be a tremendous honor to share your your words, your voice, your mission with the Can Man Radio Show and the network out there. So thank you again. Listen, guys, as always, I want you guys to remember it's important to be your brother's, your sister's keeper. Always keep your head on a swivel. Remember to be a good mentor, be a good leader. Never be afraid to fail. And never be afraid to make a decision right, wrong, or indifferent, because you know what? Indecisiveness is usually the greater evil of the two. So if you simply just embrace what you have and the gift given to you, you'll push ahead. So that being said, God bless. We'll catch you on the flip side. And if you're looking for other great content out there, then check out some of my friends, starting with my good friend Steve Green from the Five Alarm Task Force, and then my buddy Rob Polick out of Passaic with Flow Invent. Then move down to the Down to Fight Fire podcast out of British Columbia, looking at SA Matters, situational awareness that is, with Dr. Richard Gassaway, the Jump Seat Radio Nation, my brother and the Jump Seat Radio podcast with Captain Ryan Pennington, talking about Pin the Q, Code 3, Do Work, the Thin Red Line podcast with my brother, Otta Passaic as well, Captain John Haywick, the Fire Rescue Show, the Average Jake Firefighter, and John Spira's Fit to Fight Fire podcast. Go check these brothers out. I know they'll appreciate you stepping up and listening. They'll always be there for you. Take care.